This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys ready to study God's Word together this morning? Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. As we open up God's Word together this morning, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is, this morning's outline and focus from Acts chapter 18 is the passion of my life and ministry. The bad news is this morning's passage and outline is the passion of my life and ministry. And so I have to use every ounce of self-control in me today to keep this contained to our normal amount of time. But I, I promise you I will do my best. In Acts chapter 17, we're, we're skipping through this chapter, and here's the reason why. It's not because it's not important. It is. It's actually one of my favorite chapters, if not my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. But if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, uh, you know that Acts chapter 17 is one of my favorite places from which to preach the gospel. Um, And it's Paul at the Areopagus in Athens. And I have preached that a couple of different times over the last couple of years. And so I'm intentionally skipping over that chapter for the sake of time in our study and going to chapter 18. And in chapter 18, really when you put chapter 17 and 18 together, what we're reading about in these chapters are, it contains Paul's continued travels through the Greco-Roman world on his missionary journey. And in these two chapters, we see three major cities emphasized. We see Athens, we see Corinth, and we see Ephesus. And what I want you to see from, like, especially Corinth and Ephesus, is that Acts is chronicling in historical form the basis where many of the New Testament books are going to be written. And so, for example, we're going to see Paul in Corinth today. He is later going to write two different letters to the Corinthian believers. We're going to see Paul in Ephesus today. And, of course, we know that there's a New Testament book called the book of Ephesians, which is the letter to the Ephesians. And so I want you to see how the Bible connects together here. And I want to just make a couple of comments about these three cities. And so he was in Athens at the Areopagus. Athens was an intellectual center. It was known for its academic and philosophical exchange of ideas. Corinth was a commercial center, known for its trade and commerce, yes, but it was also known for rampant sexual immorality and a deep sense of pride in the homeland. Ephesus, also a commercial center, but in addition to that, also a very religious center, known for its plethora of religions based in philosophy, mythology, and the occult. So to sum it up, in chapters 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul and his companions sought to make disciples among a population of people who were largely influenced by strong pulls of academics, economics, immorality, and a buffet of competing spiritual ideologies. Kind of sounds like living in a major city or on a college campus in the United States of America, doesn't it? 
Here at Mill City, you often hear me talking about, hear us talking about disciple making or making disciples. You hear us talking about that all the time. We've talked about it actually a lot through our study of the book of Acts. And perhaps you've thought along the way, maybe you've thought to yourself, well, yeah, that sounds great. I would really like to be a part of that. But how do you do it? What does that look like? What does it look like for me? Well, today's text is going to illustrate for us what I believe to be a timeless process for making disciples among a culture not acquainted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're going to see connections between the first century Roman world and the 21st century American world. And I want you to see that the practices that these disciples, these apostles followed in making disciples among a people not familiar with the gospel is the same process that you and I can follow today. And so what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 11 to get us started, and then we're going to jump down towards the end of Acts 18 later during our time. And so in Acts 18, verse 1, here's what the scriptures say. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is a great passage. And we're going to see just how relevant it is for us today. I just want to dive right in this morning. A timeless process for making disciples. First, ask God to lead you to those whom he is drawing. We learn this from Paul in this text. Ask God to lead you to those whom he is drawing. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we get a glimpse of some of the struggles that Paul experienced. It was not an easy time for him. We've already seen him arrested numerous times. We've already experienced through the scriptures him being beaten and hurt, harmed because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see some, some, uh, a, a human side of Paul here. Like Paul was not simply the bold disciple preaching the gospel of Jesus with with no fears or no trepidation in his heart. We see this in verse 9 because the the Lord's response to him. In verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Now for God to tell him not to be afraid, that we can infer what from the text? That Paul was probably afraid. 
And based on some of his other interactions in other cities, it's good reason to understand why he would be afraid coming into a place of such rampant sexual immorality and such a plethora of world religions and spirituality at this round table of philosophy and religion. There was something about Corinth, something about Corinth that disturbed Paul. And God reminds him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You might want to underline that statement. I have many in this city who are my people. What is God saying? Paul, there are people in Corinth whom I have preordained to myself. They are here. You go find them. Take heart. I am drawing men and women to myself. And we learn this from other places in the scriptures. And we learn this from Jesus himself. In John chapter 6, when Jesus is giving the discourse on him being the bread of life, in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. In verse 44 of that same chapter 6, he says this, Jesus, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So here's a theological truth that we need to understand this morning, grasp it this morning, and hold to this morning. God is drawing people to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. But God is not drawing everybody to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. This is an important truth for us to understand. Why is it that when we share the gospel, that there are some people who are just simply receptive and teachable and want to know more? But there are other people whom you have shared the gospel with for months and years and perhaps even decades. And they are no closer to believing today than they were five years ago or six months ago. It's because the father is drawing some to himself right now and he is not drawing others to himself. And we learn this theological principle from our savior, Jesus. And in this prayer time, in this vision from God to Paul, he's reminding Paul I am sovereignly leading men and women to myself. And I have those men and women in this city of Corinth. You think this place is absolutely useless. You think there is no spiritual good that can happen in a very spiritual, dysfunctional place like Corinth. But I'm telling you, Paul, they're out there. Brothers and sisters, here's what this tells us. Here's what it tells you and me today. God has people around us. Do you believe today that God has people in the city of Lowell? Do you believe that God has people for himself at UMass Lowell? Do you believe that today? And if you believe that there are people out there whom he is drawing to himself, don't you believe that it would be incumbent upon us to ask God, Father, would you draw those people to yourself? Would you soften their hearts towards the things of you? Would you make them receptive towards the things of God? This is one of our first duties in disciple-making, friends. Is, are we, is this truth? Are we asking God to draw people to himself, softening them by the power of the Spirit? And here's, here's the kicker for me. 
And then, Father, would you cross my paths with those men and those women whom you're drawing? You see, that's much more intentional praying. That's a much more missional way of praying for the lost. And so the first duty for us this morning in this disciple-making process is to ask God to lead us to those whom he is drawing. Here's second truth. Trust God's provision and presence as you go. Trust God's provision and presence as you go. Back in verse 9, in this vision God gives to Paul. He says, do not be afraid and keep on preaching. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Verse 10, why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Now it's important to understand what's going on here in this text so that we can understand what is not going on in this text. I'll start with what he's, what's not going on. God is not giving a universal promise to all believers that believers in Jesus Christ will never be harmed or hurt on planet earth for the sake of the gospel or through other means. But what is going on in this passage is that God was giving a unique promise to this unique apostle of God at this unique place in this unique time in his ministry. Because remember, Paul had already experienced a lot of harm before this. And if you read on in the book of Acts, you're going to find out that he's going to experience some harm after this. So this wasn't even a universal promise to the apostle Paul. But for Paul... In Corinth, this was God's promise to him, and it actually came to pass. Now, you and I don't live in Corinth today, and we don't have this specific promise from God that we will not be harmed, or we will not experience persecution or pushback from preaching the gospel. But here's what we do have. We have the universal promise of God's presence. We have the universal promise from Jesus Christ himself in the great commission of his promise. It's perhaps the most important promise of the great commission. Now in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we remember Jesus saying to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them uh, everything that I have uh, 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 taught you. And what's the last promise? And behold, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And friends, there it is. There's our promise. I'm going to be honest with you. It's hard to be on mission. I tried to be honest with you last week as well. It is hard to be on mission with Jesus. It is hard to make disciples. It is scary sometimes to open my mouth. I put you in your workplace or in your class. It's hard to break the silence and bring up spiritual things to those people whom you are interacting with on a regular basis. I get it. It's scary for me at times as well. What's going to be our hope in the midst of our fear? Or in the midst of our pushback or our persecution. It's the fact that God's provision and his presence is going to go before us. Jesus is always with us. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says this. That Jesus, this is a promise from God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's our promise. That's what we hold on to. A practical way this plays out in my own life often. Is I can have spiritual conversations with people. 
Or I can experience hard conversations with people as I'm leading them in the faith or they're not getting it. It's not adding up. And so often you can think, man, what's wrong with my arguments? What's wrong with my reasoning? Is there something wrong with me here? But one of the greatest promises I hold on to is when I go back to my prayer closet, I lie my head on my pillow at night, resting in the fact, but God, you promised that you would never leave me nor forsake me. You promised that you would always be with me. And I know that today, as I spoke your word, that you were with me. And whether it was good or whether it was a bad way of presenting it, your word is powerful, your gospel is true, and your presence is real. And so I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust your provision. I'm going to trust your presence as I have shared the gospel today. So you see these first two parts of this process. We haven't even gotten to sharing the gospel yet, have we? So one, ask God to lead you to those whom he is drawing. And number two, trust in God's provision and his presence with you as you go. Now three, I want you to see this in chapter 18. Share the gospel with as many people as possible. Share the gospel with as many people as possible. In verse 4, in Corinth, the scriptures tell us that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In verse 5, you see Timothy and Silas arriving on the scene from Macedonia. And they are coming from Macedonia. We know this from other places in the scriptures that they are carrying a gift to bring to Paul for his ministry. Now, Paul was a tent maker. He is what we would call a bivocational pastor. He was preaching the gospel, entering into synagogue after synagogue, reasoning with Jews, and also reasoning with Greeks he would come into contact with outside. But then Monday through Saturday, he was a leather maker. He was a tent maker working with Priscilla and Aquila. Timothy and Silas come on the scene and they bring a gift. And so Paul is able to change vocations now because in verse 5, it says that after this, Paul was occupied with the word, meaning that this is what he did all the time, meaning that he was able to preach the gospel now and reason in the synagogues and reason with Greeks and Jews on a daily, regular basis. But I want you to see that in verse 4, he was sharing the gospel regularly. I want you to see in verse 5, he was sharing the gospel regularly. If you go back to chapter uh, seven, <clears throat> 17, verse 2, whenever he was in Thessalonica, it says that as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And so Paul was always doing this. You go down to Ephesus in chapter 18, verse 19. It says, and they came to Ephesus and he left uh, Priscilla and Aquila and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Here's what we learn. You take all of this and you can boil it down. Paul was sharing the gospel with as many people as he could. The gospel was simply on his lips all the time. My New Testament professor at uh, Southern Seminary, Thomas Schreiner, <clears throat> he's one of the foremost scholars uh, on the New Testament in the country. He points out that over three years, Paul traveled approximately 2,000 miles by foot and about 1,000 miles by boat. And that means that a nearly 50-year-old man walked the equivalent of the distance between Boston, Massachusetts and Salt Lake City, Utah, just to tell people about Jesus. 
Now, friends, every one of us is not called to be a Paul. Every one of us is not called to be a vocational pastor, a vocational preacher. And because of the unique circumstances of perhaps your family life or your uh, vocational life or your academic life, you have schedules that don't necessarily look like the Apostle Paul's. But your calling is to be the faithful disciple of Jesus he's called you to be. And regardless of what our place in life is, what our station of life is, what our age in life is, every one of us is commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. Every one of us is commissioned to have the gospel on our lips as regularly as possible and sharing the word of God with as many people as possible. This is like one of the, one of the areas, one of several areas, where it's actually a really good thing for conservative Christians to be liberal. Is be liberal in sharing the word. Be liberal in sprinkling the word of God. It's the principle of the parable of the sower from Jesus' ministry, that wherever I'm going, I'm sprinkling the word out. I'm sharing the gospel. But I don't stop there. I believe this is one of the biggest mistakes or misunderstandings in the Western church. As we believe that our mandate, our commission from Jesus, is just simply to go out and share the gospel with as many people who will listen. That's not the great commission. And it's not what Paul did here in chapter 18. It is a part of the Great Commission. But I want you to see how these two play hand in hand. Because if you can connect these two dots, you're going to be well on your way to being a more faithful disciple maker. And it's what I want so passionately for each one of us as Christ followers today. So yes, share the gospel, thirdly, with as many people as possible. But then fourth. Now there's a distinction here. Here's number four. Then invest the most time in the most teachable. Invest the most time in the most teachable. Now, why is this? Because the commission is not to share the gospel. The commission is to make disciples. And making disciples is not going to happen by a five-minute gospel presentation. Making disciples is not going to happen by just simply sprinkling the word a little bit and then moving on. Making disciples means... That someone is coming to faith and then they are growing in that faith to then become a disciple maker themselves. And so what we're going to see by the end of our time is the commission is not simply just making disciples. But making disciples who will then also make disciples. <clears throat> but we're not there yet. Look with me at verse 6. Look at this distinction. So Paul is going from synagogue to synagogue. Why? Because he was a Jewish man himself. And these were people who were already softened to the things of God. There was already a faith in God there. And so Paul, a very Jewish man, is going to Jewish synagogues, proclaiming the gospel to show how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah that all of the Old Testament prophets were pointing towards. <clears throat> and you see that in Athens and Corinth and Ephesus. But then look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From, out, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now let's just stop there for a moment. Paul was not always the most eloquent man. And although Paul was a very faithful man, and in many ways we should follow and emulate his example, 
there are other places where we can recognize Paul was a little rough around the edges. And and I'm not exactly sure that this approach is the same approach that Jesus would want every one of his Christ followers to follow. I'm not sure that Jesus would want us at the water cooler tomorrow, in our lab tomorrow, when someone rejects the gospel from you, to look at them and just say, fine, you can go to hell then, right? I mean, I don't think that that is the Jesus approach. But for Paul, uh, this was a little bit of his approach here. But I don't want us to miss the spiritual principle because of the rough edges here. Because look at what he does. You have people, these Jewish people who had been raised in the faith of God, had believed the promises of God and then rejected the Messiah. And they're rejecting Paul's message and they are reviling him and persecuting him verbally in response to the gospel. So what does he do? Does he sit there and try to plead with them and come up with better arguments and just continue to speak to the same people over and over and over and over again? No, what he does in verse 7, it says this. He left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Here's what Paul teaches us, is that as we are going along our lives, we bring up the word. We talk about our Christian life. We talk about our involvement in our faith community. We share the gospel. And what we're doing along the way is we're praying for softened hearts and for God to draw people to himself. And what we are looking for is we're looking for those who have a positive reception, those who might say, I would be interested in knowing more about this. Can you tell me more? And then maybe we ask a question. Well, I would be willing to get together regularly with you, maybe an hour every couple of weeks, or maybe an hour a week, and we could walk through the Gospel of John together, or the Gospel of Matthew, or something like that. And would you want to know more? Would you want to know more? It's one of the things we ask a lot of times when we're on the mission field, when we go around the globe. We ask those questions, would you want to know more? And oftentimes people will say yes. And if people say yes, that means that there's something stirring in that heart. And we need to be able to delineate between those whom we are just banging our spiritual head against the wall. Like, why won't they get this? And sometimes we're trying to focus on that same person, same person, same person so often But it's clear by their response that God is not at work there. God's not drawing them. And there could be a whole host of people in our lives, in our families, in our suite, who are very softened to the things of God and would want to go those next steps. And we completely miss them because we're working on our case study over here. And we just want to see this one over here get it. Paul shows us how to be sensitive to the Spirit. He shows us how to be intentional. This is very instructive for you and for me. We invest the most time in the most teachable. Now, I want to fast forward down to verse 24. Because in verse 24, we're going to see one of those most teachable. Now they're in Ephesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila, his his companions along the journey, they have gone to Ephesus with Paul. And what's going to happen is Paul is going to leave Ephesus in order to go to other places. And Priscilla and Aquila are going to stay there. And in verse 24, we're introduced to a man named Apollos, who was a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we're introduced to this man named Apollos. And we learn a lot of good things about him. We can probably infer from the text that Apollos was already a believer. He was fervent in spirit. He was instructing people in the way. And we've already looked at uh, other passages in Acts that, that re- refer to the early Christians as people of the way. And so it's safe to assume that Apollos was a believer in Jesus by this point, And he was a very eloquent man and a very good preacher. And so he's now going into the synagogues. He's following Paul's example. And he's explaining the way of Jesus. But Priscilla and Aquila, the more seasoned followers of Christ, they're listening to him. They're listening to the instruction that he's giving. And they're noticing that he doesn't necessarily have all the dots of the faith connected. And so what do they do? They don't rebuke him on the spot as a false teacher. They don't embarrass him in front of people and calling him out. But what they do is they take him away privately. And they start explaining to him more accurately the things of God. Friends, this is such a picture of the disciple-making process of what our responsibility is as Christ followers. You see, our responsibility as Christ followers is not simply to share the gospel. It's not simply just to lead people to the faith. It's not just to invite people to the church so the elders now can spiritually uh, witness and lead every single person. We have a mandate from Jesus, every one of us, to be disciple makers and to invest in other believers particularly young believers, and helping them grow in the faith. This is what Jesus meant whenever he said in the Great Commission to teach them everything that I've commanded you. That word teaching is a very relational teaching. You see, right now, I'm teaching in the didactic sense. I am standing in front of a group of people, and I am giving information. And you're to receive that information and then to practice that information. But this is very impersonal. The Great Commission, when Jesus says teach, there's a relational element here. Not only to learn information, but to attach oneself to the one being learned about, but also the one who's leading us in that knowledge. And that's our mandate from Jesus. And this investment is what we call discipling or disciple-making. Sometimes we may call it interchangeably uh, spiritually mentoring. I'll give you a couple of definitions from two noted writers. Mark Dever from Washington, D.C. says, Discipling is helping others follow Jesus. That is just a simple definition. I love it. Discipling is helping others follow Jesus. Deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. It's a great working definition of discipling. 
My mentor, Chuck Lawless, says this, Discipling is a God-given relationship in which one growing Christian encourages and equips another believer to reach his or her potential as a disciple of Christ. And so that's our goal. That's what we're seeking to do. It's what Paul did with the Corinthians. It's what he did with the Ephesians. It's what Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. And so what I want to do now is I want to walk you through at least three ways that we invest the most time in the most teachable in helping make disciples. Number one, help them to know the word. Help them to know the word. And this is the example of Apollos. He knew the baptism of John. He knew what repentance meant, but he did not know what the baptism of Jesus was. He didn't know what the great commission of Jesus was. There were some dots that weren't connected in Apollos' life. And so Priscilla and Aquila stepped in to fill the gap of Paul not being there anymore and also to fill the gap in Apollos' understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. Now, where in the world would Priscilla and Aquila have learned this? Well, look at verse 11. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among the Corinthians. And it's where Priscilla and Aquila were. They worked together in the tent making business. They operated together in the body of Christ. They obviously learned this from Paul. And now Priscilla and Aquila were teaching and instructing Apollos. We help them to know the word. Friends, you may be here today and you say, but Chris, I don't have a seminary degree. I know, I recognize that. And you know, and I didn't have a seminary degree either whenever I was walking alongside of some of my peers when I was in college. I didn't have a seminary degree for the first few years of my ministry and being a missionary and a pastor. A seminary degree is not what's required in order to help someone know the word. Any Christ follower can know the word. And any Christ follower can help another person know the word. Priscilla and Aquila also did not have seminary degrees. But they knew the word, and they helped Apollos know the word. You see, you may not be able to explain all the intricacies of systematic theology and Christian philosophy today. But what you do know is the word of God you've been taught. And let me put this in perspective for you. Let me just assume that you've been here at Mill City Church for at least one year. And so you've been a part of Mill City Church for at least 52 Sundays. And let's just say that you haven't had perfect attendance, but you've been here more often than not, and you have been here 45 Sundays over the last 52, which means that over the last uh, 52 weeks, you have received at least 45 different outlines and Bible study guides like this. I want to put this in perspective for you. Do you understand that just having 45 of these makes you more well-versed in Christian theology than many believers across the globe today. You are far more ready to help another believer understand the Word of God than you think you are. You have been lavishly invested in. So will you go and help an Apollos? Will you go help a Priscilla? Will you go help an Aquila to know the word. Help them to know the word. But secondly, we learn from this text to encourage them to grow in the word. 
Encourage them to grow in the word. We don't want them to just stay where they are. We don't want them to simply know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want them to know how to live it, how to be on mission, how to deal with doubt, how to receive the promises of God, how to persevere, how to read the word, how to pray. All of these things of the Christian faith. We see this in the text. I love verse 27. Because after they take Apollos aside, he starts getting a vision and a passion for making the gospel known in other areas. And so it says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. I just want you to think about that word for a moment. The brothers encouraged him. This is one of the words that I would use to describe what it means to be a disciple maker. is to come along another woman, to come alongside another man, and simply encourage them in their Christian growth. To encourage them to follow Jesus more faithfully. To encouragingly rebuke and correct, and to encouragingly push forth in faithfulness and obedience. That's one of our responsibilities And again, where would they have learned this? Well, go back and look at verse 23. I love this description of what Paul was doing. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You see, sometimes I think we're really okay at inviting people to church. And we may even be okay in sharing the gospel But where we really lack oftentimes in our discipleship and our disciple making is strengthening and encouraging the disciples. And this is what it means to be a disciple maker. Chuck Lawless goes on in one of his books and writes this, We know that we need to study the Bible, but we don't always know where to begin. Pastors tell us prayer matters, but we don't always understand how to pray. Telling others about Jesus is essential, but not always modeled. We don't need someone to tell us what to do as much as how to do it. We need equipping. This is what we do with our kids. This is how our kids learn how to tie their shoes and make their bed. It's because we teach them. We don't just tell them, we show them. And this is what we do with young disciples. Howard Hendricks says, We forget more than 90% of what we hear. We remember about half of what we see but we remember almost all of what we engage in firsthand. I was meeting with a a new believer on campus a couple of weeks ago, and God has just remarkably transformed this young guy's life. And as I was uh, meeting with Brandon over lunch, he was just talking about all the ways in which the gospel had changed him and all the things that God was teaching him and all the things that he wanted to do now with his newfound faith. But one of the most encouraging things that I heard during that time is he kept talking about Josh and he kept talking about Daniel and he kept talking about those other guys, those upperclassmen guys who had invested in his life and helped him know the word and was encouraging him to follow Jesus. Friends, this is what disciple-making is all about. We need more Joshes, and we we need more Daniels in our faith family. So help them to know the word, encourage them to grow in the word, and lastly, challenge them to teach the word. Challenge them to teach the word. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. 
It wasn't enough simply to share the gospel over and over again. We needed to invest in some of those who were most teachable so that they would then learn how to own their faith. But it wasn't enough simply to share the gospel and invest in them so that they would then be strengthened and empowered to own their faith. It has to go another step. We then challenge them along the way to do with others exactly what we have done with them. We challenge them then to teach the word. Okay, you know the word, you're growing in the word, now go teach the word to others. I love the way this ends. I love the way this ends. In verse 27, And when he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Apollos, who had been invested in by Priscilla and Aquila, he gets to Achaia and he immediately starts investing in those who had come to the faith in Achaia. This is the process. This is the process that Jesus started when he said, make disciples. This is the process that Paul would go on to describe in 2 Timothy 2.2 this way. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, I fear that so often in our American churches, we as believers experience what we might call dead-end discipleship. Dead-end discipleship. And what dead-end discipleship is, is that being a disciple of Jesus is all about me becoming a Christian and owning my faith and just having a great relationship with Christ myself. Or we make disciples and we go that next step and say, I want to exercise my faith and I want to bring someone to faith and I want to walk alongside of them, but I never challenge them to walk alongside someone else. I never challenge them to teach someone else. And so that process just dead ends right there. Friends, the disciple-making process is we hear the gospel. We are helped to know the word. We are encouraged to grow in the word. We are challenged to teach the word to others, but then we challenge those to teach others as well. Friends, this is a simple disciple-making process that we get all the way back from the book of Acts in chapter 18. If you've been around my ministry for any length of time, you know that one of my favorite books is The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I'm going to say it one more time. If you haven't read that book, you should go to our library today, get it off the shelf. It's free of charge. You can get it, take it home. You can read it this week. It's only about 95 pages long. But Robert Coleman wrote that book about 50 years ago. And he just chronicles the way Jesus invested in his disciples and sent them out on mission and how we can emulate and follow his example. And Coleman writes this. It's one of my favorite quotes from that book. He said, we should not expect a great number to begin with, nor should we desire it. The best work is always done with a few. Better to give a year or so to one or two people who learn what it means to conquer for Christ than to spend a lifetime with a congregation just keeping the program going. Nor does it matter how small or inauspicious the beginning may be. What counts is that those to whom we do give priority in our life learn to give it away. I want to talk to two different groups of people today. I want to first talk to the person who's listening today and you're saying, man, 
I can't make disciples because I'm not a disciple myself. One of the things that we learn from the text is that Paul went in and out of the synagogues of the weekly gatherings, just reasoning from the scriptures for people to believe the gospel. I hope that what you've seen in recent weeks is that's what I seek to do, is to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is who he says he is. And this isn't a spiritual fairy tale, but this is real life. And the gospel of Jesus Christ still changes lives today, 2,000 years later. And the gospel is for you. You may not think that the gospel is for you, but it is for you. And today, the response that you might have would be to recognize your need for a Savior, to recognize your sin nature, to confess that sin to God, and to embrace the Son of God, Jesus, as the hope for your soul, to place faith in Him, to place all of your volitional trust in who He is. We would love to walk alongside of you and what that means. And so today, that would be, could be a reality in your heart simply through prayer and response today. But then you could reach out to a trusted mentor or pastor or leader today and tell them what God is doing in your heart so that we might be able to help you know the word. The other group of people I want to talk to today is I want to talk to Christ followers. I want you to know that this process we've looked at today of asking God to lead you to those whom he is drawing and to trust his provision and presence in your life and to share the gospel with as many people as possible and then to invest your life in those who are most teachable and most responsive, I want you to know that this isn't the commission to just apostles. This is not the commission to just pastors and elders. This was Jesus' commission to every Christ follower. And I want you to know today that on the authority of God's word and based on also the experience that I've seen in my own life, this commission is for every single one of you and every single one of you can do it through the power of God working inside of you. And I wonder if today, by just simply looking at these truths from a different angle and a different text, might the Holy Spirit impress that upon you and you might leave today with a newfound sense of calling to make disciples who make disciples in your life. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have an opportunity to respond obediently to what Jesus <clears throat> has commanded us. Father, today I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Drew and John who sought me out as a freshman in college and helped me understand the way of God more accurately. I'm thankful for the example they gave me, and I'm thankful for all the men and women you've put in my path over the years whom I've had opportunity to lead. Father, I pray that in my own heart that, and in my own life that you would put more men and women whom you're drawing to yourself along my path who are receptive and teachable to your word, whom I may invest in and lead spiritually, helping them to know the word, encouraging them to grow in the word, and then challenging them to teach the word to others. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room today. Would you challenge, convict, but then commission out of this place today more Christ followers to be on mission with you and for you 
for the sake of their friends, their family, and their neighbors. And we pray that you'll receive the honor and the glory and praise from more hearts and more lips who are singing the praises of Jesus because of the faithfulness of your people and the work of you through us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.